I apologize for that feedback. I think we're good now. I want to thank Pastor Doug and the worship team this morning and that last song and the way that we segued into this time. It's just a meditative preparation for our text today. It is an exaltation of Jesus. And we are considering at this point in the Gospel of Luke the exaltation of our King, but it's not onto a throne, it's not onto a conventional King's platform, it is to the cross and ultimately to the resurrection. But in this text today, we see part two of Jesus on the cross. And if you haven't turned there already, please do turn to Luke chapter 23, and we will be in verses 44 to 56 um, throughout this time this morning. It's hard to believe that we started our study in Luke back on December 1st of 2019. A lot has happened between that time and now. Since that Advent season, none of us really foresaw the period of darkness that our world would be plunged into and that even our church could not escape from. As I reflect back on all that's happened from the end of 2019 until now, I think of sitting here through unplanned funerals for people. I think of sicknesses that have come and debilitated us. I think of job loss that people have faced. And I know that right now we're coming out of that season of darkness on the one hand, but still the world has just this shadow or a pall that is over us all. And I know that our hope that we sang about this morning is true. But what about the times when the darkness just seems to block our view of God? Sometimes we think that God perhaps has abandoned us to the darkness. And as we've seen throughout Luke, the one constant we've had during all of this time on these Sunday mornings is the reality of Jesus Christ who faced that darkness and came into the darkness as the light of life, was born on a dark night in Bethlehem and a star broke that darkness to announce his arrival. And yet in the text that we have today, the light of the world is shrouded by darkness and eventually snuffed out. And what happens to followers when their only hope, their life and light is suddenly taken away from them? As Jesus hung there on the cross, as we saw last week, surrounded by two criminals, mocked by the religious authorities, spit upon and beaten by Roman soldiers, and further ridiculed by them to come down off of the cross if he could, we see that Jesus has endured it all. He has been patient and he has been full of grace and forgiveness. But the time has come on the cross when his true work, the work for which he went to the cross, is about to take place. And while the demons rejoice, and while Satan triumphs 
at seeing Jesus suffer in this way. And it seems like the plan of God and the power of God through Jesus is about to be extinguished. What Luke is trying to highlight and what he wants us to see against all observations to the contrary, he highlights through the lens of Jesus Christ on the cross the true source of God's power. And what he wants us to see through the text in Luke 23 is that the cross is the instrument of God's power for salvation. And that's our theme today. And the title of our message is The Power of the Cross. When all seems to be impossible and when it seems as if God does not know what he's doing, that he is not in control, or perhaps he has abandoned us to the darkness, are times, if we view them through the cross, that we see that God is most intimately at work, weaving together the tapestry of his story and producing the hope that we need. We will see through Luke 23 that the, the cross is God's power to settle debts to reveal hearts, and to transform lives. Those are my main points today. And I would ask you, if you would, to look again at Luke chapter 23. And we will see, starting with verse 44, um, this first point. The cross is the power of God to settle debts. If you look at verse 44, here's what it says. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. We'll stop our reading there in verse 45 to comment on what's happening in this text. Jesus has now entered what Luke says is the sixth hour that is noon according to our clocks. Uh, Jesus has been on the cross for several hours by now He's had those conversations with the criminals. He's heard the mocking and the jeering. Um, Simon of Cyrene has already carried that cross and Jesus has been on it for some time. But now what happens is this darkness settles, we're told, over the whole land. And it says that the sun's light failed and that this lasted from noon until 3 p.m. This is not your standard solar eclipse. Most of us have experienced a solar eclipse within the past few years. I can remember back on August 21st, 2017, um, being out in the backyard with my family and using our special glasses to look up as the moon blocked the sun and created that beautiful ring around it. That lasted a few seconds. I can remember the kids were excited. We watched old video of it, so my memory is a little more fresh about it. And perhaps you know too, um, even here in Knoxville, we got to experience unnatural darkness around 6.30 in the evening that day. If you were down in Sweetwater, Tennessee, you probably saw it even better than you saw it up here in Knoxville. But at that, that was only for a little bit of time. And even then, we could kind of see around us. But what Jesus experienced here was an unnatural darkness. And it was the result not of a mere solar eclipse, as some have said. Solar eclipses don't last for three hours. It wasn't dust from the Middle East desert that 
came in that day and blocked out and created a gray or brown kind of look to everything. There was a blackness and a darkness that descended that day at 12 noon. It's inexplicable other than to say that this was an activity of God. In particular, it is an activity of God's wrath. We don't talk about wrath very often. But here at the cross, God's wrath is on full display. The darkness that settles over Jesus that day is God's displeasure and judgment on human sin on the one hand. God is not pleased with the sin that rules our hearts and by which we use and abuse each other. And his wrath is revealed from heaven against all manner of ungodliness. So often, God withholds his wrath. And in divine forbearance and patience, he does not judge and pour out that wrath as our sins so justly deserve. How could God ever, though, holy and righteous, withhold his wrath when his divine image bearers down here continue to mock and belittle him and tell him, in effect, we do not need you. How could God ever withhold that? Because he knew that at one moment in time, the issue of his wrath and the settled nature of the need for that wrath to be satisfied would take place. And it would take place on the cross. This darkness was God's judgment for sin. And it was also his judgment that was placed on his only son. It's hard for us to know what that wrath was like for Jesus. We know that Jesus in theology is described as having obedience that is both active, meaning that he obeyed everything in the law of God his whole life with a loving relationship with his father and perfect relationships with everyone around him. But he also had a passive obedience where on the cross, he took everything that belongs to the charges against us. He took all of the sin and he bore it for those hours on the cross. And the intensity of these three hours was the avalanche of sin crushing and pouring into his own perfect heart. Theologians fail for ways to describe to us ways that we can understand what Jesus was experiencing during these hours. They said, in a way, perhaps you can imagine an ocean that's vast, but that's surrounded by tall mountains. And an avalanche of black sludge pours over those mountains and falls in unrelenting waterfalls into the ocean until ultimately it's corrupted and there's nothing left of the previous ocean. It's all black. Jesus, who knew no sin, was immersed into the sin of men and women and the wrath of God was directed at Jesus during those hours on the cross in an unrelenting judgment. And Jesus took it all. Jesus bore it all. The debts that we had against God 
could not be settled by obedience. Our sin debt could not be pushed off and ignored. It had to be judged. And Jesus must die. And he took the full wrath of God for human sin. Amen. But you know what Jesus further communicated through the power of God that he actually accomplished the mission. And he opened full access to God. In the, in the temple, something unique happened that day. As Jesus opened full access to God, we see that signified by the rest of verse 45. It said, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Imagine being in the temple that day, working on the Passover sacrifices as a priest, and the darkness settles over the whole land. I can imagine a priest who was a good Bible student would have thought of the original darkness that settled as the ninth plague over Egypt in the book of Exodus. As the people, as the Jewish people in Goshen were away from the darkness that settled over all of Egypt for three days where people couldn't get up from where they were for fear of hurting themselves or hurting one another. The darkness was so thick. It wasn't until the Passover sacrifices were killed or the firstborn sons were slaughtered that there could be relief from the judgment of God that was on the people at that time. Jesus did not go three days of darkness, but accomplished all the wrath of God and the judgment for sin in three hours on the cross. And at the time when the Passover sacrifices were being slaughtered in remembrance of God's deliverance from Egypt, the Passover lamb was slaughtered on the cross. And at that time, the curtain temple was ripped in two from top to bottom. This was no minor curtain. I actually read that it was 60 feet wide and 90 feet tall. It was thick and adorned with pictures of cherubim who were guarding the most holy place of God into which only one person could go, the priest, once a year, having been prepared to enter that place of worship and communion with God to atone for the sins of the people for that year. But when Jesus died, that curtain, as if it was ripped or cut by a sword from the top to the bottom, was ripped wide for all to have access but the significance is it is only through the shed blood of Jesus. If you would be right with God, even today, you cannot go into the holy place in communion with God unless you have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Only the blood can give you access to God, but the blood has been shed, freely poured out for all who would come and repent of their sins, and receive forgiveness and grace. This is what Jesus did. And he similarly and finally finished the mission. We learn 
in Psalm 31, verse 5, that there was a psalm that children in Israel prayed before going to bed at night. Their parents encouraged them to pray this prayer. And here's what it said, Psalm 31, 5. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. This is what Jesus prayed. This would have been after Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished. If you look down at Luke chapter 23, you'll see what Jesus said. Verse 46, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, all of this pain he's experienced on the cross, the hours of agony of pulling himself up just to breathe, and then an agony slumping back down under the weight of his own body pulling on those nails. Jesus, still with strength, pulls himself up and proclaims with a loud voice a prayer to his Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. To the end, Jesus never lost confidence or faith in his Father. You and I, in our periods of darkness, whether we are plagued with doubt, whether we are plagued by sin, we are so quick to be suspicious of God. But Jesus, through all of the darkness that oppressed him, never lost sight of his God, never lost sight of his Father, and remained, even through those dark hours on the cross, completely dependent on his God. If this did not happen, we would have no hope. But Jesus communed one last time and spoke in a way so that everyone could hear. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And it doesn't just say he died. The text says, and having said this, he breathed his last. This is a unique phrase that is found in the Gospels when it talks about Jesus' death. Jesus was not a victim who died as a result of all these things, but he willingly gave up his life. And he did so so that we would know that the work was finished. This is good. And we learn in 2 Corinthians 5.19 that it was God. We learn there, the Apostle Paul says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. The mission of God, 2 Corinthians 5.19, was to reconcile the world to himself, to complete the mission of paying the penalty for sin. No other sacrifice is required. And not to make it possible for someone to come, but accomplished that all who come will be forgiven, that any who come will be saved. This is good news. And while the cross seemed like chaos caused by Satan and evil men, we learn that it was truly the power of God on display. 
There were some who watched that day, and Luke records three reactions. And we'll go quickly through this and come back in the application at the end to talk about it. In point two, we see the power of the cross to reveal hearts. Look at verse 47. It says, now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. The centurion is the first person that Luke highlights. He's the one who was in charge of a hundred soldiers. He would have seen countless crucifixions, but he had never seen a crucifixion like this. As he thinks back on what he saw, the, the forgiveness of Jesus to his oppressors, the patience that he had on the cross, his love for his enemies, the darkness as it settled, the cry of Jesus, it is finished. And the loud cry, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The man knew something was different about Jesus. This crucifixion was not a hapless victim of his own fate. It was not somebody who got stuck in the machinery of Rome and now is paying the penalty. This person did not deserve to be here. Now in in Matthew and Mark, you have the same centurion saying something like, truly this man was the son of God. Luke is recording something further that this man said, and it has been Luke's intent throughout the gospel to show, particularly here in these trials and in the crucifixion, that Jesus is innocent. And the conclusion that we must draw as well, Jesus did not deserve to die. But the theological intent of what happened there is that Jesus must die. And I believe the centurion is one of the first of many Romans, many Gentiles, who would come to faith. Now as we go to the next one, we see that there were crowds. There were Jewish people who had, in verse 48, assembled for this spectacle. We saw that they had come expecting to see something and and spectacle, it's an interesting word. It's only used here in the New Testament and it implies a source of macabre, gruesome entertainment. There, There weren't reality TV shows to take part in in that time and the reality was daily crucifixions, criminals getting what was coming to them. And so the people went out to see this spectacle. But how does it describe them going back? It says that when they returned home, they were beating their breasts. This is the same description that's used back in Luke chapter 18, verse 13, of the publican that Jesus highlights who is praying in the temple. Remember, he said that there's a a Pharisee that prays, God, thank you that I am not like other men, that I am not unjust, an extortioner, or even like that publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Meanwhile, there is a tax collector who is over here, and it says that he can't even lift his eyes to heaven. Why? Because the conviction of his own sin has so gripped him, and at his heart level, he can't continue anymore. 
He can't go on like he did. He can't pretend that there's nothing wrong. But it says that he beats his breast and he says, without even the ability to look up, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the text tells us in the same grammatical structure, this is the result on the crowds. It's impossible to go to the cross and to witness these things that happened to Jesus and to walk away still just a part of the crowd. The cross is the dividing line for all humanity. It is the point in history that you have to step over because you cannot ignore it. It's the watershed moment for all people. Jesus died for humanity. Jesus died for human sin. Jesus died to bear the wrath of God for sin. That is the dividing line. Will you believe that or not? Will you walk away a part of the crowd or will you beat your chest broken because of your own sin? Embracing your own folly and your sin before a holy God and acknowledging that a sacrifice has been paid for you. Well, the last people to be mentioned are the acquaintances, and that's how Luke phrases them. There are 11 disciples and the women who had followed Jesus all the way from Galilee. These women are not the same as the women in the text last week, I don't believe. The one that Jesus talked about as the daughters of Jerusalem. Those were women who were professional mourners who cared for these poor, unfortunate, misguided souls who would commit crimes in the Jewish community and face a Roman execution. Jesus turned to them, remember, and he said, don't weep for me, but for yourselves. These women here, and at the end of the text, and at the beginning of the resurrection text in Luke 24, are the faithful ladies who are later on identified um, as the Marys and others who accompanied him all the way from Galilee here to Jerusalem. And it says in the text, verse 49, all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Their response is not yet what it will be. Even in the next week as we celebrate the resurrection and Jesus rises up from the grave, even then his key followers, his disciples don't believe it. The women tell them, and you might remember if you've read, you've read ahead and you see they don't believe the women. It's not because the women are women. It's not because their report is incredible. Right? So they just had a heart that was closed off until they could see Jesus in the flesh. And incidentally, Luke has quite, quite a high opinion of women as we will see as we study this, about their place in this story. They're meditating on these things. They too have seen all these events on the cross and they are not walking away unchanged, but they are grieving. They are broken. And the hopes that they had for a future seem to be dashed as the light of the world now has gone out. So we come to a point now where I wonder in this text if there's anything that we could see that would give us hope. We sing of the hope of the resurrection, but what is the power of the cross 
In the third place, and finally today, I want to highlight one man, Joseph of Arimathea, and to demonstrate from the text the power of the cross to transform lives. Look at verse 50, if you will. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. It says that this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. Joseph of Arimathea only appears at this point in any of the Gospels. We've heard about his friend Nicodemus in the Gospel of John, John chapter 3. And in John 19, uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus work together in order to take the body of Jesus down from the cross. Now, timing is crucial here. Jesus' body at this point in the narrative is hanging on the cross. The soldiers look at him and realize that he seems dead, which they can't believe, right? People just didn't die on these crosses. Sometimes, in, in the short period we see here, sometimes they would last for days. But the Sabbath and the Passover were happening. And lo and behold, it seemed like Jesus was dead. So the soldiers, the other gospel writers tell us, took a spear and put it into Jesus' side. And out came a mixture of water and blood, meaning that he had died and that the blood and water was starting to separate in his body. Those who have the opinion in the Muslim community or in the liberal community that don't believe the Bible who would say that Jesus fainted or that perhaps he was not dead but just weary need only to read the testimonies of those who were present on this day. He was truly, really dead. Joseph took note of this. And what's interesting, what we find out about him is that he's Jewish. He has a hometown that's identified here as Arimathea. He tells us that he was a respected member of the council. These are the 72 men with ultimate authority over the decisions for the Jewish community and government. These were the same men who tried Jesus and determined that he should be put to death. But the text tells us that Joseph was not there. It's obvious that either he was not there or that if he was there, he did not consent to their plans. But since another gospel writer tells us that their decision as a council was unanimous, what we're led to believe is that Joseph was not there during that time of decision. And he's reached a point now where he has seen all of this and there's something for Joseph that just snaps, but in the right way. The two things that I see that take place in Joseph in this text are a transformation away from being a hypocrite to courageous and fearful to a position of love. Joseph, according to John chapter 19, verse 38, had lived his life up to this point afraid of the opinions of his fellow leaders. Uh, John tells us that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly 
for fear of what the Jews would say. But we know from Jesus and what he preached during his lifetime that if anyone does not confess Jesus openly in front of people, then neither will Jesus confess that person openly to his father. Something has to happen to a person who comes to the cross. If it truly transforms you, then it will transform you to be courageous and to identify with Jesus. The cross is the definitive statement of God that he did everything for you. And I can think of Joseph thinking back on his mind, I could have done this for Jesus. I could have spoken out in his defense. I could have put my neck on the line. I could have identified with him even to the cross. But when Joseph saw the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus, I have to believe it dawned on him that it didn't matter how many things Joseph could do for Jesus. What mattered ultimately was what Jesus must do for Joseph. I think later on, as we learn about the Apostle Paul and what he wrote, that Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 would have been a key verse for Joseph. Paul said there, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live, in, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The power of a transformed life recognizes it's not about what I do for God. It's about what Jesus has done for me. And I love how he said, it's not just that Jesus died for me, it's that he loved me. He loved me. And he gave himself up for me. That's key to the awakening of a heart and the transformation of a heart from fear and self-focus to courageous disciple who loves Jesus. Joseph and Nicodemus went to Pilate and asked permission to take the body down. It's only a few hours now until darkness and the beginning of Sabbath. So they hastily take the body down from the cross. And think about what this means for a Jew who all his life has held to the, the stringent rules about cleanliness and holiness. By touching a dead body, he is defiled before the Passover, before the sacrifice in the temple, before the worship that would go on over the Sabbath but he doesn't care anymore. He takes Jesus down, getting all of the spit, all of the grime, all of the blood on Jesus and carefully takes his body down. Nicodemus, who has brought with him, if you can believe it, 75 pounds of ointment. 75 pounds. We struggle to get a 50-pound suitcase up on the scales at the airport before taking a trip. Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of ointment to show his dedication and that he too was changing from a hypocrite and the power of the cross revealed his hypocritical heart and he gives all he has. They hastily anoint the body, they wrap the body of Jesus in a linen cloth and they place the body of Jesus in Joseph's own unused 
tomb. And this fulfills Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, saying that the Messiah would be given a king's burial, that he would make his burial place among the rich, even though he was killed and crucified among criminals. As the story ends, the women note where Joseph and Nicodemus have placed the body, and they get ready to come back on Sunday morning with more ointments. It's Friday now, turning into the Sabbath, because as soon as the darkness hits, the Sabbath begins. That would be day two. It would have been a long second day for those women who were waiting to have access to the body of Jesus. And that's the way our text ends. They returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandments. So what's the conclusion of this? We've looked at the power of God on display at the cross, and I want to speak to two groups that could be here this morning that I think the text speaks to. And the first question that I would ask of the first group is, have you been transformed by the death of Jesus? Have you been transformed by the death of Jesus? I've thought of my wife's story this week in preparing this sermon. Baptized when she was nine, Lauren thought she was saved. She believed that Jesus died, she was fearful of hell, and she took the step of obedience to him. Yet it wasn't until she saw transformed lives in some students that she met around the age of 14 who believed on Jesus that Lauren truly became a believer. She looked at the cross again, although she had read those stories so many times. But this time, she saw not only that Jesus died, but that he died for her. That is a crucial distinction. It's not merely the fact that Jesus has died. Christians are not people who merely assent to facts, although the facts are true. Jesus died. The reality for a Christian in his or her heart is that Jesus has died for me. I need him. I have come to him, but it doesn't mean, it doesn't, it's not all about I. He has died for me. He loves me. And all I can do is throw myself on him in faith and trust. The centurion in Luke 23, 47 saw all that had taken place. Perhaps you need to look again at the text of scripture this week until your heart is softened. You need to look again at the cross and say to the Lord, show me Christ. Reveal to me the power of the cross. Show me Jesus as my savior. If you seek God out on that level and if you ask him those things, he will answer. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him 
we might become the righteousness of God. Do you regard yourself as a sinner? Jesus became sin for you so that you might become the righteousness of God in Christ. That is the great exchange. Perhaps you today need to come to the cross so that that would be true of you. Time is too short to, to merely say that you are a Christian, but not be certain. Time is so fleeting that you don't know walking out these doors that you will live to see another Sunday. But you have confidence today and can know for sure that Jesus' sacrifice really happened and that today is the day of salvation. And like the disciples, maybe the second category are people who feel defeated. Do you feel defeated today? Perhaps the darkness is closing in on you. Perhaps all of your hopes, like these disciples, for many, many years, you've had great days, great experiences, but now it seems like that darkness has settled in. It could be the death of a loved one. It could be your own cancer diagnosis or some other illness that you know will, apart from God's divine miracle in your life, claim your life someday. What do we do when it seems like that darkness just overwhelms? With love for you who are in that darkness, I encourage you as well to look again at the cross. As darkness was placed on the Savior that day when he died, God the Father turned away from his Son. God turned away from his only Son so that we who come to Jesus by faith will never face the abandonment of God. God will never leave you. Jesus had confidence in that moment as God poured the wrath out on him. Jesus had confidence that God was righteous, trustworthy, and always good. And yet Jesus was punished as if his thoughts of God were blasphemous and wrong. And in the great exchange, all of us whose thoughts have been blasphemous and wrong towards God will never be forsaken by God because of Christ so that our hopes can be revived. Our lives cannot be shrouded by darkness forever because the darkness will not always win. Ultimately, we need reminders. And recently, I was reminded through the ministry of a a group in Scotland called 20 Schemes. They reach out, this group does, to um, crime-ridden, low-income housing communities, and they plant churches there. And the stories that come up of lives transformed are amazing. But as you could see and probably think, there's a lot of difficulty that people face when they come out of those backgrounds and they need reminders dependencies that they once had and they feel that they need to go back to or deaths or or danger that they were in that seemed to follow right on their heels 20 schemes writes music for their churches and recently i was blessed by one called look again the lyrics say this 
When our joy in salvation fades, days of darkness draw near. When we find ourselves lost at sea, drifting through times of fear. When the emptiness mars our view, heaven's glories grow dim. Caught in sadness we can't remove, keeps us from rest in him. Then the chorus says, look again to Calvary at your Savior's arms stretched wide, hanging there for all to see under dark and heavy skies. Hear him cry in victory, it is finished as he dies. He redeemed you. He will lead you safely home. Such encouragement for us who, like those original disciples, face the death of our Lord. But if we would read the story, if we would look at the cross and call to mind what Jesus said, we know the resurrection is coming. But as you leave today, remember the Savior who died for you. And if you have never embraced him as your Savior, today is the day to do that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice in the power of Jesus on the cross. We embrace the Savior as the only Savior. We, we sang about only one could do for us what we most needed. Only one could take the wrath of God. Only one could bear our sin. Only one could redeem us. Only one can keep us now and take us home. We, we worship you, Jesus. For the lost here, I pray that they would see their need of Jesus and today would be their day of salvation. For those in Christ who are broken and in darkness, I pray that today you would shine your light on them from the cross, that they would see you and embrace you. Amen.